Welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And a wonderful Saturday afternoon to you all. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles, David Layton here. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Howdy, everybody. Happy birthday, Charlie. Howdy. And uh, Dan Galeasso is our guest today. Uh, and the reason he's our guest is because he had nothing else to do. No. Um, <laughs> he, he's, uh, Dan, Dan knows his stuff. He gave stuff. my secret away. I know. Dan get, knows his stuff about Charlie Russell, a great American uh, Western artist. And we are uh, celebrating Sculptor, Charlie's. Illustrator, uh, yep, writer, storyteller. We, we are celebrating Charlie's birthday today, the 19th of March. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. Pleasure to have you again, as always, uh, have you on the show. Uh, Charlie Russell, what is it that makes this guy such an icon? Well, you know, his West, depicted in his paintings, are the most authentic of that period. I mean, Remington's certainly, you know, incredibly authentic, too, but he really lived the life of a cowboy. He really spent time with a lot of the Indians, and... He got to know a lot of the old mountain men that were still around and, and hear their stories. And so, uh, you know, he kind of came at it from three different different directions. And, the way, you know, they always said about Charlie Russell's paintings, it wasn't just a horse that that cowboy was on. That was that cowboy's horse, a horse that Charlie knew. The horse. Interesting. I remember seeing a television show. And I don't remember if it was a Death Valley Days or not, but... Uh, Robert Taylor, I worked on that one. Well, no, I'm not... You're jumping ahead of me there, son. Uh, <laughs> Calm down there, buddy. Calm down. Um, it, was, uh, it was the story of Charlie Russell, and uh, Fess Parker played Charlie Russell. Oh, this is a different one. Yeah. That was an unsold TV pilot. There you go. Thank hey, you. See? Yeah, it shows up on YouTube. Yeah. And then, then Bunker was talking about the Death Valley Days episode they did with Robert Taylor playing that he Charlie worked Russell. That was a Wrangler's last ride. <laughs> that, uh, that Bunker worked on. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you do on that one? I was a sod buster. Don't okay. tell anybody, though. <laughs> don't tell them. I don't want people to know I was... Oh. It could have been worse. You could have been a sheep herder. Mm, hey, wait a point. minute now. You know, <laughs> or a, or a pig farmer. Too, you know. Be careful now. How long have you been studying Charlie Russell, Dan? Oh, God. Going back to probably when I was in college, when I first discovered those coffee table books about Western art, and then specifically about Charlie Russell. And uh, I remember going when I was going to college, going to the San Jose State Library, and discovering the magazine Persimmon Hill for the National Cowboy Hall of Fame, and they always featured a lot of Russell art in the that magazine. It happened to be down in the periodical section. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, I, you know, I didn't know anything about the other collections at the time. That was kind of my first. And I started looking in the, the books that labeled, oh, this is out of this collection or that collection, and finding out about the Sid Richardson collection down in Fort Worth, and the Almond Carter Museum collection, and the Montana State Historical Society collection, and was like, gee, this is spread around, but there's a lot of this art, and finding out that he did over 4,000 pieces of art during his lifetime. Yeah. Hey, i got a question for you. This is because, you know, reacquainting myself with Charlie, because I I came across trails plowed under about 60-some-odd years ago. But uh, 
I know he was dyslexic, and it was a specific kind of dyslexia. And it got me to thinking that because of his dexterity with molding and modeling, that he might have been a savant. And I'd kind of like to get your impression on that because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that's kind of like, you know, it's like a genius that can't control his genius when it comes to certain areas of their life and stuff. Well, you know, when he was growing up in St. Louis, they could hardly keep him in school because he had a very short attention span. And his mother came from, this is like a little known thing, if you ever heard of the Bent Brothers and Bent Fort, and yes, Charles Bent, the, they, those, those were his cousins. And, and so he had a, a connection to the West through his mother who encouraged his art. And, you know, they kept on trying to keep Charlie in school. And finally, just before he went to Montana, the year before, they said, okay, your best friend's going to military school in, I think it was Massachusetts. Said, we'll send you to military school up there. If you last the year, then we'll send you to Montana. He didn't last three months. <laughs> uh, you know, and it was that particular type of dyslexia they, they said he had. It had a lot to do with, with uh, writing and communication and language. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're probably onto something there, Bunker. I don't know that I'd quite call him a savant. Uh, you know, but he things once he learned certain things, they they stuck. And you know, he, he because the trails plowed under. You know, he wrote a heck of a lot of those stories, but he'd write them in his own kind of dialect. A lot I of love dialogue. That. That's the way they talked. Yeah, and that's one of the really cool things about about reading his short stories. Hey and Dan, uh, just a quick question, kind of off the subject, but the Bent cousins wasn't one of the Bent cousins uh, governor of New Mexico during the Mexican American War. Or is that a different uh, Okay, that would have been the uncle. That was his mother's brother. Mm, okay. And so then the two, his two cousins, or her nephews, so second cousins, uh, were, they were George and, you get, there's a second Charles. So if you've ever seen the, this, the, or read the book Centennial or seen the miniseries, those two half-Indian brothers, Pascanel's kids, were really the Bent brothers. That's what they were based on. Well, they and, were men. Well, and, and the interesting thing was George, at the beginning of the Civil War, went off and enlisted. He was in school in St. Louis at the time, and he enlisted in the Confederate Army. And he then came back to his father's ranch in southern Colorado at the end of the war, and there was a lot of prejudice against former Southerners, so he went off with his brother, the Charles Jr. They rejoined Mother's People, the Cheyenne, and they were at the Sand Creek Massacre. Wow. And that turned them really mean at that time, and Charles rode off with the Cheyenne Dog Soldiers and died fighting the Pawnees with the Cheyenne Dog Soldiers. But George, his younger brother, wound up, even though, you know, he'd seen what happened at, at, at uh, Sand Creek, wound up being an Indian agent for his people. And so he was married to, I think there's a little bit of controversy about this, but I believe it was uh, the chief at Sand Creek that was that was later killed at the Washita, uh, Black Kettles, one of Black Kettles' daughters. And those, their kids, their two daughters, went to finishing school in St. Louis when Charlie was a little boy. 
And so the odds of them having visited with Charlie's family were very, very high. And, you know, there's stories about George winding up and his wife coming to St. Louis to see their daughters. And like I said, the good chance was they're going to see the relatives. And George later became a kind of a lobbyist for cattlemen to get grazing rights on Indian reservation land. And so that would have been about 1880s, 1890s. So you see there's this whole kind of interesting, you know, connection between Charlie's family and, and you know, Charlie's interest. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this. I kind of got the impression that in some ways Charlie was also a remittance baby, that from time to time a little care package would come drifting out from St. Louis. Absolutely. In fact, when his mother passed away, that gave him and Nancy the money to build their first house in Great Falls because there was a small inheritance. Yeah, didn't he get a $500 uh, dividend from his dad for the brickworks? Uh, I don't know about actually getting it. The amount of money I believe he got from his mother's estate was somewhere around $500. Mm-hmm. His father would occasionally send said a care package that involved some money. Uh, at various times. Charlie tended not to ask for that as far as we know, but, you know, Dad would figure out kind of that he needed it. But after Nancy and his career starting to build up, that became less and less, and his father became very instrumental in touting his art in St. Louis when the International Exposition, you know, the World's Fair came there. Yeah, he wasn't one to... He wasn't a salesman, uh, and I use that in quotes, uh, of his art. He he would rather, yeah, okay, you like it, you can have it kind and of guy, Mark right? Give it away. Yeah. Well, and Nancy's the one who eventually put a stop to yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> You know, because she learned, she taught herself how to be a marketer and a salesperson. And Charlie was, was very upfront about that. You know, his, his friends or other artists would ask him, about, you know, they say your, daughter, your wife is handling these things for you. And he goes, that's right. She's far better at it than I am. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting is it seems like the Russell family had a lot of friends out there in the uh, Judith Basin. And apparently they, were, they would get uh, information about what's going on with Charlie from time to time. So they really did keep close tabs on him. Well, remember, that was a time period when a lot of Eastern money was invested in cattle ranching. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, before boys. the big die-off, you know, in, in 1886, the, the bad winter. And so uh, when they first sent Charlie up to Montana, it was with a sheep herder who had a sheep ranch. And it was a friend of a friend mm-hmm. of the family's. And that's how how he got up there. And, of course, he was a lousy sheep herder by his own own admission. And, he, you know, the last thing he wanted to do, he kind of picked on real quick that, you know, cowboys and sheep herders didn't get along in general. <laughs> and uh, he got fired very quickly. And that's when he met Jake, the trapper, who took him under his wing yeah. and saved him from starving to death up there that first winter. Yeah, I get the impression that, uh, you know, Charlie wasn't much of a sheep herder. And even when he was with the trapper, he was more more inclined to be off drawing somewhere, or instead of trapping and, and <laughs> doing, you know, do, he had Charlie kept the camp, you yeah. know, and uh, and did his sketching and stuff like that. And Jake Hoover was, uh, you know, more than happy to you know have the company. Yeah, and and you know brought in the meat and taught him how to get along with Indians, taught him a little bit of sign language. 
and uh, that was you know his first exposure to that kind of even then when Charlie was up there in the early 1880s the first time you know that kind of trapper's way of life was fading really quick you know yeah. the mountain man period it ended in 18 early 1830s pretty much right. yeah he almost saw the west flash before his eyes when you think about it oh yeah no no question about it. you know what he saw the last of the plains indian more so with the canadian indians with mm-hmm. the creeks and the bloods you know uh you know he that was that was seeing that fading part of the west and then he sees the cattle industry basically get destroyed for a few years and then build back but then we never know what what charlie would like to know what charlie knew knew or thought about the johnson county cattle war yeah speaking of he would have been up there you know not too far away speaking of the johnson cattle war there's a book called too long at the dance are you familiar with that no uh-uh. i recommend it heartily it's i put it up there with lonesome dub wow. wow i think it's great is it michael michael blake or blakely i think it is is the guy that wrote it okay the as hollywood has portrayed characters uh from the west in history over the time it, frequently hollywood does not get it right um, as to what kind of a personality this character may or may not have been. I get the sense that what Fess Parker, how Fess Parker portrayed Russell in that unsold television pilot was kind of like that's how the guy was. Am I right? Well, Dan? I'll tell you, think of Gus McRae and Robert Duvall's portrayal of Gus McRae. Okay. That's probably pretty close to what Charlie was. Okay, okay. Yeah, because Charlie was a... He was you know, he never he never had a buddy he wouldn't help. Uh, he was he didn't have he a bad one, word to say. At one point in there, he he did he did a, a painting for a guy because he was really hard up. One of the saloon guys gave him some money for it. And he turned around and gave the money to a, a cowboy buddy of his that needed boots. So he you know yep. he, he didn't make a penny on the deal. Just the kind of guy he was. Interesting, interesting. Well, and you know you can watch certain westerns and see like. The influence, Lonesome Gov is probably at the top of the heap for that, that mm-hmm. right in the opening shots, when you see uh, Tommy Lee Jones trying to break the hell bitch, yeah. and the way it's shot, and the bronc going up, sun fishing, and that court on the stunt guy doubling, mm-hmm. you know, Tommy Lee Jones and everything, it's right out of a Charlie Russell painting. And Bill Whitliff, who was the writer-producer on that, and that was a case where Bill Whitlip, as a writer-producer, had far more influence than the director, who was an Aussie, <laughs> who could, he could do horse stuff really well, but he didn't know the subject matter. How can and you direct Bill a, Whitlip knew and loved the subject matter. How do, you do, how do you direct a movie if you don't know the subject matter? Well, he did Australian. Well, I don't care, but how do you... Because, well, he knows Harry, how to set up uh, shots. He, you know, I would he, say to you that, that that this takes into account uh, the producers wanting the objective view yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of, of the subject matter. Yeah, yeah. Just remember uh, Michael Apted doing Thunderheart, who's an Englishman, and uh, you know he and the uh, the gentleman who did Mississippi Burning mm-hmm. about uh, racism in the South with the Klan, also another Englishman. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd say take another look at what is a Civil War kind of Western, Ride with the Devil. Incredibly 
great looking movie directed by Ang Lee, who's from Taiwan. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing to yes. us. You know, yes. The Aussies, they have the Bush Cowboys, and there's a great similarity. There is. Their yes. poetry, their yes. cowboy poetry, is, it's almost yes. indistinguishable. Yes. Yeah, I, I've discovered that watching some of the Aussie Westerns. Yeah. And here's the you know, Simon Winsor, the Aussie that, that, you know, is the credited director. If you take a look, he had done a film called The Light Horseman in Australia. Mm hmm. And it's about the, a famous charge in World War One that looks so John Ford, mm. it's incredible. And, uh, you know, he later directed uh, Quigley Down Under, too. Yeah. Uh, and he also directed uh, the remake of Monty Walsh with Tom Selleck. And, you know, yeah. here's this interesting thing. I thought, you know, the TV series, How the West Was Won, the opening shots, and every time you would watch an episode... It was the paintings of Charlie Russell, which just it was actually set the, the closing shots when they run the credits at the end of the episode. That's right, yeah, and they would the cool thing they would zero in on Charlie Russell's buffalo skull and signature for the very last credit, just as the soundtrack was fading out. Yeah, interesting. Awesome. You know, Box Leitner and I have talked about that a lot. You know, because that was his first. Yeah. Big break, and he was just so happy to be on that. <laughs> and now he understands. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about uh, Charlie Russell. Today is uh, his birth date, March the 19th. On Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, I'm Harry Alexander, along with Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. Bunker de France is here in Tucson. David Layton, our, uh, our sometimes... Oh, he's our contributor. He's, he's my right-hand man today. Yeah, he is. He's our yes, contributor. Sir. Yes, yeah. sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> he contributes I just well. say yes, sir. There you go. Anyway, this is Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. Dan Galeoso is our guest. We're talking Charlie Russell. We'll be back with much more after these important messages. Stay tuned. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Are you looking for a smart way to invest your hard-earned dollars? Look no further than Wilkinson Wealth Management. This is an investment firm that works for you based on your expectations, not what the stock market says. This is a firm that wants you as a client, not just as a customer. This is a firm that lets you design a portfolio for when you need it. It's a new name, but the same great service you've come to expect. I, Miss Wilkinson, is now Wilkinson Wealth Management. 7411 East Tancoverde in Tucson, 520-777-1911. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient. 
and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. Read classic Western comics anytime at voicesofthewest.net. wife today and her name is Cassie May Rudy Tootie Rudy Tootie Rudy Tootie she's my Sunday gal the last time you heard that one <laughs> Rudy Tootie <laughs> who was that that was uh, Paul Howard and his cotton pickers oh that's cotton picking Howard <laughs> good stuff there Welcome back to Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts. David Layton, our contributor, is here on the horn with us uh, from, I guess you're in Los Angeles, uh, Dan, uh, Dan Galeazzo. I don't know. You know, you travel so much. That's in the valley. I have no idea where you are half the time. You're in the valley, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just back from Hawaii about a week and a half ago. Well, it's, so. it's, a, it's a tough life. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, it was it was work, but I wish I would have gotten to hang out with some of the Paniolos, the uh, Hawaiian Ooh, Cowboys. Oh, cool. yeah, that would have been way there's cool. Some cowboys. There's, there's a movie in there or a film. There's a couple. You working on a documentary? Uh, we're trying to get the funding for a documentary on John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And it, it'll, it'll be a little bit different. I'm working with uh, John Wayne's son-in-law, actually, who's an Academy Award-winning editor. He was one of the editors on, on uh, Rocky. The original Rocky and Scott Conrad, and so uh, you know, there's been all this PC woke garbage over the last you know two years because of this old uh, interview of John Wayne's in Playboy, where some students at USC didn't like things he said, and and so all of the there's a little John Wayne movie uh, museum at USC in the film department. And all that stuff was on loan from Michael Wayne's side of the family uh, to USC. Uh, they had some great little stuff. They had his outfit from Hondo and one of his Winchesters and his director's chair and great posters leading into it and stuff. It wasn't a big thing. It was just very cool. And he's got to be the most you know recognized student that ever went to USC, mm-hmm. even though he didn't graduate. And so these two... Uh, Two, one claiming he was part Yaki and the other one somehow related to Cesar Chavez. They got with a banner out there and made a big stink that made the news. And the next thing you know, the cowards at the USC Alumni Association all of a sudden, oh, well, we don't know. So they've taken all that stuff off display. They've cut themselves off from the Wayne Family Scholarship Program for football players. That shows and, you what chicken there's a lot of people do. that are upset with this. And if you look at the facts of things of when John Wayne granted that interview and what was happening in the world at the time and t- in the United States and, and take into context those things, those are it's all a bunch of baloney. So Scott and I hope that we can we can get the financing behind it and uh, kind of correct the record. Well, I've got yeah, a couple you know, of John Wayne stories for you. You know, and the only thing I've got to say, well, I, I, they got many of things I would want to say to the USC students, but uh, we don't have enough time and I don't have enough airspace. But I will say, 
I got two words for him. Chicken heart. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, well, let me be the bad guy, and I'll tell you, Dan, you can correct me if you choose to or if you want to, but what he basically said in a synopsis way is, you know, uh, uh, black and brown minorities are looking for power. They want self-direction and self, self-power. And you know what? That takes responsibility. It you got to earn it. It doesn't happen overnight. Right. And uh, and there and there lies the rub. God forbid oh, yeah. somebody no, says that's, something that's truthful quote. and honest. It was very straightforward, and this was a time period when. Uh, you see, see lots of kind of the violence we're seeing now, the attacks on police officers. Uh, they specifically in the interview asked about uh, Angela Davis, yeah. the absolutely avowed communist professor. Well, mm-hmm. if you go back and look at why Davis was brought up, it was because she, her boyfriend was one of the Soledad Five, who was an ultra-violent, prisoner even before becoming an activist and he was in prison for murder on death row and she buys his younger brother who's 17 years old a pistol and a shotgun and a week later when her boyfriend's supposed to be in court they're transferring him for a court appearance from prison that 17 year old that she bought the guns for saying well he's a bodyguard for me takes over the courtroom in Marin, California, takes the judge and some jurors hostage, kills the judge in the ensuing shootout. Uh, I think the assistant prosecutor was wounded. He gets killed. That makes her an accessory to murder. Yep. Mm -hmm. She was on the run. And she's now still a professor running around today, a professor emeritus from Berkeley. Yeah, right. Give me a break. I hear you, but let's get back. And also, let's remember... That the that the boyfriend bodyguard uh, the the brother boy uh, bodyguard of the boyfriend he didn't just take the judge by force he took a sawed off shotgun and duct taped the barrel yeah up against his neck at the base of his jaw and walked him around like he had him harung like a yep. like a ring through a bull's nose. So the judge not only was murdered and had a horrible fate, he also had the last hours of his life were horribly terrifying. It's disgusting. Yep. Let us she didn't she she didn't get anything of what she deserves. Let well, a, let us get back to our topic at hand. Sorry, No, 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 it's a great it's a great segue and these are issues uh, and situations that definitely need to be talked about. I, I do not I do not discount that. A uh, very important part in, in our history, and we need to know it. Um, I just want to point out okay. that if you, if, you, if you read Charlie Russell's life, you know, and if these people were aware of it, they would be opposed to Charlie Russell and his art oh, no doubt. because he was a reflection of his times. No doubt. And that's that's the whole thing. You see. That's then, it's not now. Let Getting back to... On a little bit lighter subject. Yeah, getting back to Russell... Um, if, let, let's compare and contrast uh, Russell with Frederick Remington. Cavalry, cowboy. Okay. Two words. You, you agree, Dan? Yeah, I, I think I think Bunker's pretty pretty close on on that. And uh, you know the personalities too. And it, but bringing up another Western artist, 
you know, Byron Price, who used to be the director of the, the National Cowboy Hall of Fame, is a good friend of mine and one of the top wrestle experts. And there's a wonderful Arizona artist who was originally from, from Oklahoma, Joe Beeler, that you're probably familiar yeah. with. Mm-hmm. And I got one of his when books. Joe Beeler passed away, and I got to know Joe a little bit because of a mutual friend of ours, Dave Powell. And Joe was just a great guy and had a wonderful uh, personality and was very low-key. And after Joe passed away, his his paintings didn't take like a big jump in value. You know, it's the whole kind of surrounding thing of, oh, well, an artist is no longer with us. His paintings are going to gain more value. And I asked Byron about that one night at dinner, and he said, it's because you don't have Joe around anymore. Hmm. Charlie was that kind of guy. I mean, and Joe Beeler painted a lot like Charlie. Similar subject matter and a style that was kind of similar to without copying and stuff. And it was it was like when Charlie was with the people he liked, when he felt comfortable in a group, he was a character. Yeah, and he but always... If he felt out of out of place, you know, when he was in New York at some of the openings of the galleries that were carrying his stuff that Nancy had arranged and like that. He didn't, you know, feel all that comfortable in that kind of situation. Yeah, he surrounded himself with with guys that were just like him, you know. And, and these were the guys that would go down to the saloon. You know, Charlie was famous for painting all morning, uh, having lunch with Nancy, and then going down and entertaining at the saloon for the afternoon. But he was always back in time for dinner. Oh yeah, and well, and if, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the Ian Tyson Charlie Russell song. Mm-hmm. He's got a little thing in there about, and only two from Nancy, because that was his promise to Nancy after he quit drinking, that when he went into town, you know, in the afternoon to hang out with his buddies, if he did have a drink, it was two drinks and that's it. And as he was leaving the house, Nancy would always wave goodbye with two fingers in the air. Yep. God, sounds like my wife. Right? Sounds like my wife. <laughs> well, hey, let's, let's, let's talk about for a moment about waiting for a Chinook. Uh, because that is the one that that is that didn't make him famous, but that was the one that brought the attention to him. Yeah, that's what brought him on the national stage. Because you know, to, the background for people that don't know was the winter of 1886, the worst winter in years. Probably 70 percent of the cattle operations from North Texas all the way into the Dakotas and Wyoming, Montana, were gone. Yep. And there were some that survived, some that survived maybe 30% of their cattle. And Charlie is coming in. He still got his job at the OH Ranch, Jess Phelps Ranch. And he and, and Teddy Blue Abbott come in from, from, you know, trying to get cattle up to a little bit higher ground, away from the wolves and stuff. And Jess Phelps looks at him, his, his boss and the owner of the ranch, and says, you know, the two Jews, and no nothing prerogative, attached to that those were the the guys who owned the mercantile in in helena and the butcher shop and they had a herd of cattle next to the oh ranch and and jess phelps is telling charlie he said you know the two jews want to know how their herd is doing and i ain't got the words and charlie said well what about sending him a picture and so he painted that very quick. He took a box top from, you know, the collars for, for mm-hmm. what they call boiled shirts. You know, was yeah. there starch shirts in those yeah. days? So yeah, collars, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, he took that off. It was the size of a large postcard, and he painted that starving steer with the ribs kind of sticking out with two wolves kind of ready to move in from the side. And there were two, it's, you know, uh, you know, last of, of, of the Chinooks or waiting, waiting for, uh, Help me out here, Bunker. You'll remember it. The words just deceiving me now. But what was the other title of, of, yeah, of the painting? Yeah, uh, it's Last of 5,000. Last of 5,000. Yes, thank you. And and that was sent to them because we were getting the mail through by, sla- by a, a, a sleigh. Wow. And uh, so they, he sent that to the, the two Jews. And, and the story is that, you know, their only answer to that when they saw that was, to break out a bottle of good whiskey and, and <laughs> stick it back and forth besides them. But that got turned over to the newspaper in Helena, and the other the newspapers in the area started to pick it up, and it spread over cattle country. <coughs> and, and that's what made him famous, essentially, then, right? Well, that's what started. Okay. Well, let, let, let's do it. Let's take a, an, our next break here, and then come back. When we come back, let's talk about what made the man the icon that he is today. How about that? Fancy. That's a pretty good uh, segue there, I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. Dan Galeoso, our guest, will be back. back. Pen and paper to run your business. Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304 80 the Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 skeet fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at Tucson Trap and Ski. You've got some cattle you want, Russell, but don't have enough henchmen of your own to do the job. Little lady up the road apiece won't strike a deal with you about water rights. You out there! Come one step near and old Bess here will spit right in your eye. So you need to strike your own deal, but you need the right henchmen to do the job. The stage is hauling a Wells Fargo box loaded with gold. You've got the perfect spot to liberate that gold, but blank henchmen to pull off the job. What to do? You better start packing a handgun. Call Red a Hench. We're a bad guy rental agency. We provide you with enough scrappy henchmen to tackle any job with specific directions. Just listen to what Red a Hench users have to say. Well, you know, when I joined Red a Hench, I was trained by Bud Osborne, Charlie King, and some of the best head henches there ever was. And I'm going to guarantee you that you cannot hench without the proper henches around you. And that's just a gentle hench. When you need sheer numbers of henchmen, call us. We specialize in stage holdups, water right disputes, squatter troubles, cattle rustling, and much more. Our rent henchmen may not be able to think their way out of a paper bag, but they sure can follow directions, and they won't sing to the law about you if they get caught. See our ad in the Saturday Evening Post or Harper's Weekly. 
hey, not only that, when you're in the Long Branch and you want to go next door to Doc's to get that bullet out of your shoulder, get a Renahance to sit there on your place and keep your whiskey warm while you're gone. Renahance, when you need bad guys to do bad guy stuff so you can keep your hands clean. You let me do the work. Hi, I'm Wyatt McCray, grandson of Joel McCray, and you're listening to Voices of the West. This is the Voices of the West. Back on Abel Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles, David Layton, our contributor, is here, and our guest, Dan Galeoso. We're talking about Charlie Russell on uh, this, the 19th of March, his birthday. He was, what, born in 1864, was it? Uh, let's see. 62? 1864, right? 64? 64 or so. Okay, we, before we went to the break, we were uh, cussing and discussing about what made uh, Charlie Russell famous. Was it a painting? Was it a sculpture? Was it what? Accumulation. It was, yeah, Bunker's absolutely right. It was an accumulation. You know, he, he after the last of the 5,000, he gradually started to get uh, magazine illustrating jobs and stuff. And they... They paid pretty good for the time. They didn't pay outrageous. It might be $10 for a pen and ink, $15 for, for a black and white toned illustration or sepia toned illustration. And and that started, you know, he didn't have a lot of his famous paintings. We know him so well well for, like, uh, maybe his famous painting, if you ask me, is, is probably... Uh, in without knocking, where the cowboys are trying to ride into the saloon mm-hmm. and crash their horses in, and you know, I mean, there's everybody's got their favorite to, to pick from, well, but you know that comes afterward. But his illustrations, because the West is starting to be championed as something in Eastern publications, yeah. and you know, Remington kind of beats him to the punch by a couple of years because he goes out west a few years earlier, and achieves that that reputation with Harper's Weekly that was the equivalent of Time Magazine back then. And so, uh, you know, Charlie starts getting these from other good publications, but not from Harper's. And then he gets married to Nancy, and he's still painting on the side for local people. So, you know, there's this famous story about how he painted what is the mayor's wife grew up in Fort Benton up on the Missouri River when it was a, a big trading area when the steamboats could get in there. And she wanted a painting of Buffalo crossing the river at Fort Benton. And he painted it for her. And Nancy was like, why don't you let me go pick it up? And he, he, Charlie reluctantly was like, okay, but I told her $25. That's it. Don't you know? You know, we we need that money. There, you know, there are a couple of things that uh, were broken where they were living and stuff, and a uh, few things she wanted. And he said, "Don't, don't, you know, try and get any more out of it because that could scare her off." So she goes to pick up the painting, and the the mayor's wife says, uh, "How much?" And Nancy kind of gulped a little bit and said, "Thirty-five dollars." And the mayor's wife said, "Let me get my checkbook." Charlie <laughs> couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, I've got you know, it, instead of getting mad, he, he was certainly happy, and that was the beginning of Nancy is a huge part of why he turned into an icon. She marketed him well. I've, well, got, and she, I've got a, a quote here from Charlie Russell, I think, because he had some great, wonderful quotes. 
Old Ma Nature was kind to her red children, and the old-time cowpuncher was her adopted son. <laughs> he and Teddy Blue Abbott always said that, you know, the difference between cowboys and, and Indians up in Montana wasn't much. You know, if you thought about it, they liked living their life on horseback. They liked being free. They didn't like seeing the, the, the land, uh, you know, fenced off. And, you know, that was a big gripe. And, and Teddy Blue Abbott actually married a, uh, a Shoshone Indian gal, Granville Stewart's, one of his Granville Stewart's daughters. Because Granville Stewart's wife was a full-blooded Shoshone. Well, here's another and, great quote. It's right along the same line. They've been living in heaven for a thousand years, and we took it away for them for $40 a month. Isn't that ironic? Well, and you know, but if if you get deeper into the real history of the West, too, I mean, Charlie, you know, his big soft spot certainly was for the Plains Indian. But remember, they're a warrior culture. Yes. And so you've got all these, quote, nations trying to go to war with the other guy and to get their stuff. And so, you know, this bigger tribe, the white man, comes along who doesn't have, you know, certain certain things about, you know, culturally about war and warfare and stuff as a totally different different attitude and it was bound to turn out the way it turned out. You mean like scruples? <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, plenty of Indians you could you could go, hey, wait a minute. I mean if you weren't one of the people, you didn't count. Yeah, but you know, here's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize. The Indians when they would go to war against each other it wasn't like with the, with the European a protracted war. It was they would just go off, do their thing, go back, and move on. Raiding party, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, I kind of dispute that. It might last little, for years, but bit. it was off and on, and they would trade with each other. I, if you look at the, you know, if you know that book about the Comanches that came out about 10, 12 years ago, uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. Yeah. And that author's got a great quote in there, about two pages actually, about Plains Indian warfare. And he's like, look, you know, this was not fun and games. Don't let them sell you the, the, the bid that was, well, it was just counting coup and stuff. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was really rough and rugged stuff. The Comanches controlled the country they controlled, and that was from southern Oklahoma and eastern New Mexico all the way into northern Mexico, yeah. because they were the meanest and the baddest. They were. No question about it, you know, so, and, but by the time Charlie saw the Plains Indians, you know, as he saw them in more northern, and I mean, he, he saw the Gross Venture, he saw the Blackfoot, he saw the Cree in Canada, and they were well into losing their culture. Yeah. By then, and so you know he's he's seen parts of the worst of that kind of taking advantage of, like you're talking about scruples and you know the the, the squaws selling themselves and right. stuff. And Charlie never had much use for the Frontier Army. Uh, of course, he comes along after most of the Indian Wars are over, right. and uh, you know. And the other thing was that you know a lot of even Easterners didn't like soldiers after the Civil War because they felt that anybody who went into the Army as an enlisted man probably couldn't get a job anywhere else. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> Mr. Well, Robert, yeah. Mr. So, Roberts, you know, Mr. Roberts, you have been quite, uh, rather quiet. Uh, reticent. Uh, so throw, throw in now, Todd. Well, 
you know, I would I would ask Dan to, you know, getting back to what we talked about of the the legacy or the the iconicism of J- Charlie Russell, um, and speaking to that, Dan, you know, his influence over so many other artists such as Jody Young and Shoy Vogel and so on. Why don't you chat a little a bit about that? Not to mention his overflow from Jody Young into Hollywood. Yeah. Well, you know, Jody Young is his only recognized uh, protege. There are some other people that, that claimed that, you know, they were protégés of his, but we know that Jody Young lived with him for 10 years, was invited to come up and live with him with Nancy. And it wasn't that Joe was a great artist. Charlie was far, far better artist, but all the knowledge that Joe got from Charlie that he was able to hand down to Western films. Right. Because what happens is Charlie dies in 1926. Joe's been around since 1916. Kind of back and forth. He's kind of finding his own way somewhat by, by 26, but he goes up to help Nancy. And it takes 10 years. He goes down and spends time in Santa Barbara with, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name now of uh, the etching artist up there who's real famous. And he meets Cecil B. DeMille, the big director's business manager. And they're readying a film called The Plainsman with Gary Cooper. And Plains Indians are a big part of it. Gary Cooper plays Wild Bill Hickok. And when this guy meets Joe on the Rancho Vistadori's trail ride, and that was, you know, just getting started out with people like, like Walt Disney and Leo Carrillo and Will Rogers. And Joe's on the ride, and he meets this guy, and it's like, oh, my God, here's Joe illustrating, like, people's hats and vests and stuff. And he said, you know a lot about the West, and you know a lot about Indians, too, right? And he goes, well, yeah, I do. And, you know, Joe was deaf, but that came from getting spinal meningitis when he was, like, 18, 19 years old. So he didn't grow up deaf. He could read, read, read lips really well. And he said, I, I need to introduce you to, to, you know, my client, you know, Cecil B. DeMille. He's looking for somebody like you. And that's what started Joe, you know, bringing the Russell look to the movies he worked on. And if you look at The Plainsman, you know, there's a lot of, of Charlie Russell in it, you know, right from the, the Plains Indian stuff, right through some of the Frontiersman stuff. And you can go all the way, you know, there are things in Red River. And I was just talking with somebody about this the other day. Mm-hmm. And Noah Berry Jr., right. one of the, the, the guys, he looks like he's right out of a Charlie Russell painting. And, he and Charlie, Russell, yeah. Charlie Russell's look was, you know, pretty distinctive as opposed to, say, a Remington look. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you can go to Shane, where Jody Young was literally on the film from beginning to end. I've, I've been in the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Library and looked at George Stevens, the director's personal copy of the script, and there are notes and sketches from Jody Run throughout almost every page on the opposite page. You know, you talking about how Charlie Russell told him about this story or that story. Wow. You know, you, you mentioned Will Rogers, and I think I just want to mention that in Trails Plowed Under, the introduction... Uh, was written by Will Rogers, and what a perfect introduction to Charlie Russell and the language that uh, Rogers uses is the language that Russell spoke. 
Oh, absolutely. And I mean, people thought they were brothers. They kind of looked alike. Yeah, well, Indian, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, even though it, Charlie didn't have any American Indian blood in him, no. but he looked like he would have, except, you know, he had dirty blonde hair. Yeah. And got, so, go ahead. I said, I, I've got a, just an example of Charlie Russell's humor, because we haven't really talked about that, and, and he was famous for it. But he was talking, and he said, I ain't giving his name because he's married, and married men don't like history too near home. <laughs> and that was well, one of my favorite short stories of his is a David by another, by another name. Mm-hmm. And it's about the sheep herder that comes into town. On in, in the short story, it's Christmas. It almost seems like it would be 4th of July. And the bully, Goliath, starts picking on David because he doesn't like him or his dog. <laughs> and how that eventually winds up that it's a showdown between David, the sheep herder, who's a real quiet fella, and and Goliath, who is Goliath, like six foot six and you know, two hundred and eighty pounds, and in the face down, David picks up a rock and he hurls it and hits hits Goliath in the head. Goliath goes down and David runs up and takes his Colt single action out of his, his holster and begins to beat the hell out of him because he was beating his dog. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> right. And Charlie's little tagline is that this was the second time a David, you know, beat a giant beat a giant named named Goliath. <laughs> and on that note, we got to do our final commercial break. We're talking with Dan Galioso in Los Angeles uh, about Charlie Russell. Today is Charlie Russell's, or would have been Charlie Russell's birth date. He was born in 1864. You're in tune with Abel Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Tad Roberts in Los Angeles, David Layton, our contributor here. We'll be back after these messages. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Western For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Are you looking for a smart way to invest your hard-earned dollars? Look no further than Wilkinson Wealth Management. This is an investment firm that works for you based on your expectations, not what the stock market says. This is a firm that wants you as a client, not just as a customer. This is a firm that lets you design a portfolio for when you need it. It's a new name, but the same great service you've come to expect. I, Miss Wilkinson, is now Wilkinson Wealth Management, 7411 East Tank of Verde in Tucson, 520-777-1911. Hello? 
I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldier's Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. Somebody lying sick or bleeding around here. Well, now, if you just can't stand to see me getting a few minutes hard-earned rest, why don't you go out and shoot somebody? This is the Voices of the West. On Abel Francie's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles, David Layton, our contributor, is here. Uh, well, he's not here right now, but he's wandered uh, off somewhere. He's wandered off somewhere. Dan Galioso is our guest, and uh, we're doing a bit of. Uh, it is Saturday, you know, yes, so why not some Saturday night boogie, right? Boogie woogie. That Back in be, my younger days, I would have gone out and done something stupid. Well, that would have been, uh, that, that's Al that's Dexter. I do something stupid. But uh, Al Dexter and his troopers doing the uh, Saturday night boogie there for you right yeah. here on Abel Francie's Voices of the West. Saturday night, it's Western's night. What are you, what are you watching tonight, Bunker? Uh, Heartland, of course. Heartland. I love that series. Have you Todd? ever seen that, uh, Dan, the Heartland series? Uh, I know of it. I've seen little bits and pieces. I know it's the American Revolution, and but it has like a time travel element to it, right? No, 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 no. It's it's a series shot up in Canada. Uh, it's been going on for about 12 years or more. It's a modern, contemporary uh, ranching family. It's you know, Oh, yeah, I'm it, sorry. I know the one you're talking about. John yeah. Johnson is Canada's answer to Sam Elliott, and he is just as good. Well, it is Saturday night. Todd, what are you watching tonight? Uh, Nola and I are going to be making uh, salmon Veracruz. And ask what you were uh, eating. I asked what you were watching. Yeah. Todd. Well, but the food bring creates the theme for the entertainment. I see. Uh, okay. Yeah. So we're going to be probably after that we'll be probably watching maybe the Gary Cooper movie Veracruz. Uh-huh. That's very possible. I see. I see, I see what you're going. Yeah. I see the theme now. All right. So she's never had uh, uh, Veracruz, which is very simple. I'll share the recipe. Get a nice big piece of foil, take any piece of fish you want, get a can of salsa, put the fish in there, pour all the salsa on, turn the foil into a big uh, 
like a puff boat. pastry, yep. put it in the oven or put it on the grill and cook it low and slow. Yep. And it, it is delicious. Yep, it certainly is. Dan, what are you watching tonight or are you off traveling somewhere? <laughs> no, I'm watching Centennial. I haven't watched Ooh, Centennial a in a long time. I, I love and, and so far, it's held up to what I remember of it, how well done it was. I got a, I got a, a bee that I have. It, it, Saturday night is bee western BBC. night at my house. And uh, I got Sonora Stagecoach, uh, the rain, the Trailblazers. Uh, and I also got a Hooter movie I haven't uh, seen. I can't remember the title, but I know I haven't seen it. Mm. And a couple of Bob Steele's that I know I haven't I seen either. Like a fun-filled <laughs> what are you watching tonight, David? Well, paint dry. <laughs> paint dry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I did that a couple weeks ago. Uh, was it exciting? No, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> but you ate a box of popcorn. I did actually it was a bag of popcorn not a box well okay (laughs) that was exciting we'll let we'll let it go this time um all right Uh, we're talking about uh, that we really got off topic there uh talking uh, about charlie russell and uh god the guy was great i mean you know come on well you know just i you know i don't know of anybody that loves the west especially cowboys that don't love charlie russell because he just he epitomizes, you know, the values, the culture, the history, the romance, the imagination, mm-hmm. and and he did it. You know, he you know, by his own admission, he says I wasn't a good cowboy. He says I was, I couldn't throw a good rope, but you know, I I always, I always remember this one thing. He wrangled the horses, mm-hmm. and. He had to know in his head, because each cowboy, generally, if they were on Roundup, had about 10 head of horses, mm-hmm. and they would go up in the morning, and they would call out the horses they want. That meant he had to know the horse by the name. I mean, his knowledge, and this guy, you know, Wranglers get catch a, catch a bad rap back in the old days. As well, that's the lowest job on the ramp, wrong. But you couldn't do the Roundups in the cattle gathering without the, without the horse wrangling. We're almost out of time here. Dan Galeoso, time for some shameless self-promotion. What are you doing? you got about a minute. <laughs> well, there's there's a project I have to kind of keep under wraps that we've talked unofficially about right. before because we're, we're getting uh, uh, some serious interest from a really good literary manager and a really good agent. And... Uh, you know that that comes to the it comes to the public view. I'll, I'll tell you more more about it. And Todd's Good. been kind of a help on some of that. Okay. I'm here. And so, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. We got the the John Wayne thing as well. And here in about another three weeks, I'll be back in Oklahoma City at the Western Heritage Awards, at the Cowboy Hall of Fame. Oh. Just just hanging out with friends. Not that I you know won anything. I don't have anything entered this year. But my friend Byron Price won for uh, best art book. Nice. So uh, I'll be sweet out with him. You know that? Yeah, you do, man. <laughs> hey, Dan, have you ever been to uh, the American Quarter Horse Association Museum in Amarillo, Texas? I have. I was I was filming uh, outside of Amarillo on a show called Comanche Warrior for the History Channel, hmm. and I said, "You got to give me another day to go cowboy boot shopping in Abilene." And I found the museum, and it's a great little museum. Nice, nice, nice. I think I'll be hitting. Yeah, out I'm there always on soon. the lookout for those kind of places. <laughs> All right, yeah. Dan Galioso, thank you much for spending uh, an hour with us on a Saturday. We appreciate. Oh, it much. thank you again. Appreciate it much. That's it for this edition of Amal Franzi's Voices of the West. Our topic was uh, Charlie Russell. Happy belated birthday, even in death. Happy birthday. 
Uh, next time we get together, it'll be Movie Saturday, and we'll be streaming live at the White Stallion Ranch. And our topic is going to be... Oh, it's either going to be Gene Hackman or some... Nope. Movies theme music. Nope, nope, nope. Gene, Gene Hackman. Hackman. Yep. Okay, the Western's of Gene Hackman. We'll be it's ta- not going to be Millie Vanilli? <laughs> Girl, you know it's true. We're going to talk about the Hackman. Gene. Uh, Thanks for joining us, everybody. At <laughs> 78, 79, as Charlie would say, 80 what, O's? <laughs> so long, everybody. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West. 